thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. Before we begin, I'd just like to encourage those of you that listen, um, because, you know, on the stats that I'm allowed to see through who visit, you know, nothing, there's nothing too personal, don't worry, it's not Big Brother or anything, but um, it lets me know what regions of what states we have people listening from. And it was actually very encouraging that um, just the other week, we actually had somebody, our first person out of country actually listen, and they listened to the first episode, which was, what is the gospel? And that was somebody from all the way out in Japan. And not really sure how they found us, but it obviously meant enough to them that they were looking. And so we do pray that the Lord would continue to use the podcast, especially the first episode, the presentation of the gospel that those who might not otherwise hear the gospel would hear it, and not only hear it, but also receive it and truly come to know the Lord. But um, also, we have people from all over the country now that are listening. We actually, just a couple days ago, had more people listen in one day to um, a multitude of different episodes than several days combined. We actually had half of the listens from our first couple weeks were fulfilled in one day uh, at the first week of October, and that was quite encouraging. We have people from California, from New York, Philadelphia, um, Washington, D.C., Maryland, of course, in our home state of West Virginia, Georgia. We've had people from Texas, Ohio, um, Chicago, um, and it's just been, it's been very encouraging. And um, I just encourage you also that if you have questions, or if you just want to say, you know, hey, this point really, it really blessed me. I didn't know that before. Or if you have something that you would want us to clarify, saying, you know, well, you said this in this episode, and I just want to make sure that I heard you right, or this or that. What do you believe about this point? Or correction, because it's not about one person. It's not about one particular person's teaching or those sorts of things. It's what is the truth? You know, what is doctrine according to the scriptures? And so don't ever be afraid to send an email or something um, pointing out maybe something that that I possibly might have made a mistake on. Um, You know, I welcome it, you know. Anything at all, just encourage you. Don't be afraid. Don't hesitate to let us know. Um, You can even apply a verse from uh, Hebrews chapter 13, where it says, forget not to communicate. Don't be afraid to contact us and just let us know that something was a blessing, or even if you want to rebuke us for something. Today, what we're going to be talking about is something that I really, except in certain circles, you really don't hear that much teaching or preaching on, but it's something that, from experience, In my time of serving the Lord, however brief, I have come to see a basic difference in those that are strong in the Lord by biblical standards and the rest. It doesn't come from degrees or seminary. It doesn't come from reading high intellectual works, though some are called to examine such things for the sake of the body of Christ. As with all the fruits of righteousness, it comes from seeking Jesus Christ daily. If you have your Bibles open, and I hope that you do, open your Bible to Acts chapter 11, and we'll be looking at verses 19 through 23. It's like Acts 
chapter 11, verses 19 through 23. It's just after the Gospel of John and just before the book of Romans. And so before we begin, as we like to, let's open up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do just thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is not only afar off and high above us in all things, Lord, but that you are a God who desires us to draw near. And Lord, I just pray that you would guide and direct me, Lord, as I try to speak truth from your word, Lord, something, things that I believe that you have taught me also, Lord. And Lord, that in all things, that your spirit of truth would guide us into all truth, Lord, and that you would teach everyone who may listen, Lord, the importance of these things, Lord, and that you would use it to grow them and encourage them in you, Lord. And their feet would be planted upon solid rock, Lord. And Lord, that they would just come to know you more, Lord, and that you would reveal yourself more and more in their lives, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in the book of Acts, chapter 11, starting in verse 19, we read, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came, and had seen the grace of God, was glad, and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. I'd like to focus on the last verse, verse 23, and the statement where Barnabas exhorted them that with purpose of heart they should cleave unto the Lord. There's a very important scriptural principle here that is essential to a relationship with the Lord. It involves two parts. There's one, man's part, and two, God's part. Now, we'll look at both, and then we'll consider some implications of them for our practical daily lives. So, in beginning to talk about man's part, in verse 23, we see man's part in Barnabas' words, with purpose of heart, cleave unto. Well, what does that even mean? The phrase, with purpose, can best be described as the willful intention of your heart. So, with purpose of heart means to set your heart on something intentionally. My purpose is to do this or that. Call it conviction or whatever you want. Man will set his heart on something, and it will direct his actions. But the Lord acknowledged this is what happens when he rebuked Israel through the prophet Hosea, saying, They eat up the sin of my people, and they set their heart on their iniquity. Hosea chapter 4, verse 8. They set their hearts on iniquity, which is lawlessness or sin, and so they committed iniquity. Because they set their hearts on it, that's what happened. It is the goal or purpose that you are seeking to fulfill. If your goal is to graduate college, then you study to do so. If your goal is to please God and know Him personally, then your actions will show it. But understand what we're talking about 
is the posture of your heart towards God and not works. Outward works will follow your attitude towards God. It's when your purpose and your focus towards God is removed that sin comes in and temptation is increased because you've left your first love. You've been distracted from the one who is your life, Jesus Christ. The purpose of your heart will direct your actions. An example of this can be seen in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Daniel made a decision to not do something contrary to the law of Moses. He set his heart to keep the law because he feared and loved the Lord. His desire was to please God, not just to exercise some dietary restriction. We know from the rest of the passage that the Lord blessed Daniel in his actions. Now, also in Psalm chapter 17, verse 3, we read, Thou hast proved mine heart, thou hast visited me in the night, thou hast tried me, and shalt find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. We see here that David had purposed to not speak anything displeasing to God. He knew the Lord was trying him or testing his heart. We're told that the Lord looks upon the heart of man and not only on the outward appearance. 1 Samuel 16, 7. The outward action may be correct in some people, such as not lying, but the inward purpose of their heart may be evil. If you purpose to not lie that, so that you may please God, it is good in his sight. But if you purpose to not lie so that other people esteem you to be a good man and give you a good reputation in your own name, then your heart is evil in the matter. And our purpose or intention of our hearts should be towards the Lord and his pleasure and glory and not on our own. So here in Acts chapter 11, verse 23, we see that Barnabas exhorted the new believers, which means he encouraged the new believers, that with purpose of heart, that is intentionally, they should cleave unto the Lord. Well, what does cleave unto mean? Well, the phrase cleave unto means to stay further, that is to remain in a place or with a person, to adhere to or persevere in Hearing that, it reminds us of what we've talked about before regarding abiding in Christ. It makes perfect sense because the underlying Greek word is prosmenu, which is elsewhere translated abide still, be with, continue in or with. So, so the two concepts are very connected. Really what man's part is regarding abiding and cleaving unto the Lord is simply man making up his mind to be God's, to belong to God. My will is to do His will. The results of this being that He abides in Christ. You have set your heart to do His will. There is nothing that is not on the table. If God has commanded, as you're made aware of it, you purpose to do it and speak it. William Blaw, in his classic book, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, in talking about true devotion to God, had this to say, the short of the matter is this, either reason and religion prescribe rules and ends to all the ordinary actions of our life, or they do not. If they do, then it is as necessary to govern all our actions by those rules as it is necessary to worship God. For if religion teaches us anything concerning eating and drinking, 
we're spending our time and money, if it teaches us how we are to use and condemn the world, if it tells us what tempers we are to have in common life, how we are to be disposed towards all people, how we are to behave towards the sick, the poor, the old, the destitute, if it tells us whom we are to treat with a particular love, whom we are to regard with a particular esteem, if it tells us how we are to treat our enemies and how we are to mortify and deny ourselves, he must be very weak that can think these parts of religion are not to be observed with as much exactness as any doctrines that relate to prayers. William Law's point was that true devotion and worship of God is not just found in praying, reading, and going to church. It is found in every activity of daily life. If God has given commandments or direction about how to tie your shoes, then you ought to observe it with just as much zeal as the gospel itself. God is the foundation, and the believer is living unto God. It's as we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, and that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The believer, in order to abide in Christ, is required to cleave unto God. You set your affections on him. I delight to do thy will, O God. My desire is to please him. So in all areas of life, I examine how I ought to do it so that it may please him. It should become just as important to our daily lives as the rest of biblical doctrine. We have people who will fight all day defending the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, and the literal death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but they still won't turn off the TV or put away Hollywood and worldly entertainment. It's a contradiction of affections. They're, as the Bible describes, double-minded. I want God, but I want this part of the world too. It, it is something you will fight against in your own walk, and it cripples your walk. You're walking with half as much strength as you would if your whole will was set to please God. You might as well say, I will live an unholy life for the glory of the holy God of heaven. We make excuses about these things, but that's the reality of what the Bible expects and commands. Separate from the worldly and live purposefully and intentionally for God. That means you never rest from serving Him. You have no leisure time away from thinking deeply upon God. The light of His Word should be welcomed to search every area of your heart, mind, and lifestyle, and everything that is contrary to His own purpose and will and glory is forsaken and cast away without regret. So let's consider some verses before we go to the other half, which is God's part. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9a says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect towards him. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 23, Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 13 through 14a, And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart, and I will be found of you, saith the Lord. James chapter 4, verse 8, 
draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. We see in verses like these that man's part is to have a heart perfect towards God. Turn at his reproof, seek him with your whole heart, and to draw nigh unto God. In all these promises, we see the condition is that man should do his part. The result will be that God will do what he has promised. Now, let's talk about God's part. The Lord's part in Acts 11.23 is a little hard to see particularly. He's just the object for man to cleave unto there. Man's focus is on God. That's why I mentioned the other verses. They make the picture more complete. Well, so when we see God tell man to do something, such as don't lie, we sometimes think that God is just putting a limitation. Yes, he is limiting what we are supposed to do, and it is for our good, but we miss the point. These are conditions to allow us to have fellowship with him. We're told, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Man's part is to come out and be separate, and God's response is to receive you and be a father unto you. Every time I hear someone say, well, I was a Christian for 20 years until I saw that it was all make-believe. Usually, when you examine them, you see that they never claved to the Lord. It was all just a take-it-or-leave-it thing. They never sought the Lord with their whole heart, and so he didn't reveal himself to them. They didn't do their part. God is not a respecter of persons. If you seek him, you will find him. If you haven't personally found him, then it's because you haven't sought him. Do not blame God for your lack of commitment to him. You cannot have God on your terms. God is the one who sets the terms. If that bothers you in any way, it's because you don't know him. And a lot of these are side effects from modern Christianity with the false gospel that does not give the whole picture. The Lord did not just call Israel out of Egypt for them to be out of Egypt. His purpose was to fulfill his promise to Abraham, but primarily for them to be his people. They had to leave Egypt to be his people. The majority didn't value the Lord, so their hearts turned again to Egypt, we're told. Acts 7.39 It's because man doesn't value God, doesn't love God, that he sees God's commandments as limitations on his freedom rather than the conditions by which we are allowed to know God. The privilege, the blessing, and the honor of being called God's peculiar people is lost today. We have such a low view of God that we would rather have the world than him. God's part in the promises is clearly seen. He has set forth conditions. Cleave unto him. Make your heart perfect towards him. Turn at his reproofs. Seek him with your whole heart and draw nigh unto him. His response will be that he will show himself strong in your behalf. He will pour out his spirit upon you and make his words known unto you. And you will find him as you seek him, and he will also draw nigh unto you. It is that he allows you to know him. 
That's what God's part is. It's also the definition of eternal life. John 17, 3 and 1 John 5, 20. Eternal life is to know him. Now, it's not because you do these things that you are saved in the sense that you earn it. These things are the result of biblical faith in God. We've talked about that at length on this podcast before. If this is your first time listening and you'd like a longer discussion on that point particularly, then listen to our episodes, What is Repentance? What is a Christian? And Abiding in Christ. So in summing it all up so far, man's part is to intentionally be committed to pleasing God and loving Him. God's part is to be His Savior, God, Provider, Protector, Father, and everything else man ever needs. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, the song goes. Let's take to heart Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, what is something practical that we can take away from this principle? Practically, how does cleaving unto the Lord really play out in daily life? There's one thing that I know is extremely important and necessary to serving the Lord and cultivating a relationship with Him. It is the issue of truth. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. He also said, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. John 17, 17. Truth is synonymous with the ways of God, the person of God, and the character of God himself. We're told that God cannot lie. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. True worshipers of God worship Him in spirit and in truth, we are told in John chapter 4, verse 24. You cannot seek God and not have a strong and fervent desire for truth. Here are some quotes regarding this issue. And this first quote is taken from Dr. James Thornwell. Now, regardless of this man's doctrinal problems, I agree with his quote about truth. He says, to employ soft words and honeyed phrases in discussing questions of everlasting importance, to deal with errors that strike at the foundations of all human hope as if they were harmless and venial mistakes, to bless where God disapproves, and to make apologies where he calls us to stand up like men and assert, though it may be the aptest method of securing popular applause in a sophistical age, is cruelty to man and treachery to heaven. Those who on such subjects attach more importance to the rules of courtesy than they do to the measures of truth do not defend the citadel, but betray it into the hands of its enemies. Love for Christ and for the souls for whom he died will be the exact measure of our zeal in exposing the dangers by which men's souls are ensnared. And next here's a quote from... Ben Davenport, who wrote the foreword to The Bravehearted Gospel by Eric Ludy. The problem we have with truth is that it cares nothing for our feelings 
or preferences, and pays no tribute to our opinions or the sacredness of our dogma. Truth is about reality. It is concerned not with the way we believe things to be, or the way we would like them to be, but with the way things actually are. Truth is spun from the fabric of facts, and therefore cannot bend to accommodate the wishes and sensibilities of the masses. Truth is not the product of a vote or a democracy, and has nothing to do with the will of the people. It will not bow to the wealthy like a preening politician. It cannot be bribed, nor can it, in the name of compassion, make exception for the aged or the unfortunate. It never has and never will enter into agreement with the proud or unbelieving, and offers no parley to the religious and the self-righteous. That was from Ben Davenport, who wrote the foreword to The Bravehearted Gospel by Eric Luby, which is a good book to get you introduced to the problem of the emergent church and postmodernism in the church, which kind of is one of the underlying influences for what we're talking about here with the importance of truth in regards to cleaving to the Lord. See, it is implied in cleaving to the Lord with purpose of heart that we should proclaim the truth. God is truth, and if we are to walk with him, we are to speak his truth. The Lord blesses those that plead for truth. You can see that from Isaiah chapter 59, verse 4. Through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord said, Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now and know, and seek in the broad places thereof. If ye can find a man, if there be any, that executeth judgment, that seeketh for truth, and I will pardon it. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1. The Lord was willing to pardon the entire city if Jeremiah could find one person that truly sought the truth. The Lord ended up destroying Jerusalem. As I have grown in the Lord, my determination to speak the truth only grows more intense. I cannot comfort a sinner who is, in, who is unrepentant. I will not offer him a false sense of hope unless he repents. I will not spare someone's feelings. God gives grace to the humble, not the prideful. In presenting the gospel, we should do no less. See, Christians live in reality. The reality is this. The majority of humans are careening down a one-way highway to torment without end and wrath from the Lord. A Christian is to live with this eternal reality in full view. It's ridiculous for us to care whether or not we offend people. Every man or woman will be tempted to give heed to the fear of man, but we must learn to ignore it. You'll lose friends, family, reputation, and even churches will refuse to hear you. I've learned a little about this from experience, and I know other brethren that cannot find a church home because churches today do not want truth. They want community and status quo. As soon as you come in holding up scripture to expose error, they will put up a fight. As the Lord said about the tribe of Ephraim, they are joined to idols. Let them alone. In the book of Jonah, we are told, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Jonah chapter 2 verse 8. And the majority of the professing Christian community has set up a reimagined and redefined God in their heart, and he expects nothing of them. They refuse to accept anything else. They desire freedom, but not from sin or the world. 
they have followed the world's understanding of freedom and liberty. The world's idea of freedom is simply freedom from accountability. Its idea of liberty is no absolutes. They are tolerant of everything but the truth of the gospel. I see commercials on TV at work sometimes that talk continually about how we are strong, we are smart, we are beautiful, we are kind, we are blah, 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 etc. Man thinks very highly of himself, but the gospel declares he is depraved and drinks iniquity like water. God has commanded us to declare this fact plainly and openly to proclaim the truth of his righteousness and authority as Lord and Judge. Whether men like it or not, the heavenly city of New Jerusalem is built upon the concept of exclusivity. While many are called, few are chosen. I can tell you what it's like to stand at a pulpit, the few times I've been allowed to of the Lord, and tell a congregation something that they don't want to hear. You can tell when people are angry at you. Nevertheless, I must speak God's truth. Now, also implied from the principle of cleaving to the Lord with purpose of heart is humility and the willingness to be corrected. I don't believe I've ever heard a professing Christian say they were unwilling to be corrected. But I also can only think of a few professing Christians who are willing to be corrected. I've learned from experience the pain of having the Lord correct me on a major doctrinal issue. I had taught false doctrine to others, and I had to repent of it. Before the Lord revealed to me my error, though, I had to be willing to be corrected. The only person who should be unwilling to be corrected is the person who knows everything, and that person is God. Everyone else should be willing to be corrected. Those who teach apologetics know the argument that is commonly given to atheists to help them understand the foolishness of their view. We tell them that if they know 99% of all there is to know in the universe, that it is possible that the knowledge of God is in the 1% they haven't learned yet. If they are unwilling to acknowledge the reasonableness of this, they have simply set their hearts on lies. Nothing can be done for them. Now, the same is true for Christians. You don't know everything. You believe certain things from the scripture to be true. If I could show you, or you could show me from scripture, something that proves my understanding to be flawed, then I should with humility turn to the truth. Now most say this and acknowledge, but they never expect it. They are unwilling, and they make manifest that they have an idol in their hearts that they are unwilling to examine. Let it be a pet doctrine, a denomination, anything. When something provoked me to examine the particular doctrine I was corrected on, I had to intentionally set my mind on the desire for truth. Too many people never consider the implications of error in regards to God's word. The results can be that we lead people to hell or ourselves. That's, that's the results that could come if we are in error. Now, I intentionally put things in perspective. 
If I was wrong in this doctrine, then everyone I knew was in error. My entire denomination was in error. My pastor, teachers of 25-year ministries who discipled me, and every minister I had esteemed was wrong. And I had put words in God's mouth that he never said nor intended. And it was to the damage of people's understanding of what God had commanded them and to their souls. Now, I had to be willing to accept that in order to be corrected and to desire truth above any care or concern about it. I desired to please God. Let the chips fall how they may. He is my Lord. Whatever is, is his truth, that's what I want. Charles Finney said that a willing mind is indispensable to a right understanding of truth. As soon as you are willing to be corrected and you count the cost, God can teach you. That's a man who is faithful. Now, I don't pretend to be done learning this lesson, but I've started learning it. We cannot weigh doctrines by who they may align us with, who believes them, who doesn't believe them, what it requires of us, or what reproach it may bring us. That's all irrelevant to whether or not it's true. And all that matters is what is true. I've heard ministers say they are willing to believe what the scriptures say, and if you can show them, they'll believe it. Most are lying, because they don't expect that anyone can correct them. They're comfortable where they are. And most, as it says in 1 Corinthians, knowledge puffeth up. And whenever you go to school for years, you learn ways of thinking and systems of thinking and all these things, and there are many that are in Christianity, you become puffed up in pride. And if you were to be corrected on those things, all it would do would be a witness that you wasted your time, your money, your energy, and all of these things. And so most are unwilling to care. They are unwilling to forsake all those things. I have a deep respect for a minister that is so dedicated to truth that he is willing to walk away from a well-established and comfy ministry position because he has been corrected and can no longer agree with their principles or doctrines. That's a man God can use. In cleaving to the Lord, these things are required of us. Christ called men hypocrites to their faces. He called them whited sepulchers. He said, count the cost, and that you are blessed when men hate you for his sake. He said, rejoice and be exceeding glad. Why? Because you're in good company. You're standing with Jesus Christ, the apostles, the prophets, and the host of martyrs through church history, most of which did not have good reputations, except around those who were their brethren. We're told that Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. In cleaving to God with all purpose of heart, in seeking him and in drawing nigh unto him, you must have respect under the recompense of the reward. There is coming a day when you will stand before Jesus Christ face to face. 
and you're not going to care about some TV show that you gave up watching because it didn't please God. You're not going to care about what your friends said about you. And that day, looking into the eyes of Christ himself, you're only going to be caring about one thing. Is he pleased with me? He has given you the ability to make sure that you won't be ashamed in that day through Jesus Christ, him. They that wait upon him will never be ashamed. Now in closing, here's a quote from William Grinnell's excellent book, The Christian in Complete Armor. Let it encourage you to be bold in being a soldier for Christ. This warfare analogy reveals why there are so many who profess Christ and so few who are in fact Christians. So many who go into the field against Satan and so few who come out conquerors. All may have a desire to be successful soldiers, but few have the courage and determination to grapple with the difficulties that accost them on the way to victory. All Israel followed Moses joyfully out of Egypt. But when their stomachs were a little pinched with hunger, and their immediate desires deferred, they were ready at once to retreat. They preferred the bondage of Pharaoh to the promised blessings of the Lord. Men are no different today. How many part with Christ at the crossroad of suffering? Like Orpah, they go a short distance only. They profess the gospel and name themselves heirs to the blessings of the saints. But when put to the test, they quickly grow sick of the journey and refuse to endure for Christ. At the first sign of hardship, they kiss the Savior, reluctant to lose heaven, but even more unwilling to buy it at so dear a price. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.